You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. It's good to see everybody this morning. And uh, once again, if you're newer to Westside, or this is your first time here ever, uh, we wish you an especially warm welcome. Thanks for being here. We realize that it's not easy going into a new church or a new place, uh, and so thanks for taking the time to be here. And if you've come back twice, thank you very much. And uh, it's amazing. And uh, I remember uh, it's almost 17 years ago Terry and I came up here, and we, sometimes on Sunday the next week we'd turn around from worship and we'd go, oh, they came back. Like, this is awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> and... Uh, I just want to say this from the get-go. If you haven't gotten it already, we're about Jesus. We're about lifting up His name louder than any other name. We're about following the King and the Kingdom. And I was just reading in First John this morning in my time with the Lord, and it, and it said um, in there, paraphrasing, uh, that you cannot know the Father unless you know the Son. And so because we can know Jesus, Jesus is knowable, uh, we can know who God is. And I just, I just love that about this church. I love it also about this church. I enjoy the fact that we're a multi-generational church. Uh, we have uh, grannies and grandpas and little babies and unborns and aunts and uncles and uh, everybody in between. And uh, I really appreciate that. If you're younger, if you're a young person in here, thank you for speaking old. Uh, you're bilingual. Uh, you can relate to the older generation. And most of your peers cannot uh, talk to anybody outside uh, two or three years of of their age group. And so even if you're in your 20s or young 30s, that's a big deal. And so to be able to uh, learn from the previous generation and for the uh, uh, previous generation to make room for the next generation coming along, uh, that's amazing. And so thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, This Tuesday is the Bible school. We have two classes. There's a women's Bible study, and then there's the class that I'll be hosting on Thinking Like a Christian, uh, a Christian, a biblical Christian worldview. This has been a big deal of mine for about 30 years. I've studied a lot about it, and the prevailing worldview in our culture is not a biblical Christian worldview. And so um, parents and young people, especially if you're going to go to college someday, you're going to get hit on every side. You're going to get hit with cannonballs. Uh, and, and to destroy your faith. And um, so I encourage you to, uh, to, take, to check that out and uh, to listen once in a while. In the next couple of weeks, I'll actually be talking a little bit about that in Romans because Paul uh, refers to it uh, in, in the book of Romans. So uh, the classes start at 6.30, both of the classes. And for, do you need, do you need a book for the, for the wounds? The Thinking Like a Christian uh, you need to get a workbook, and they're available back at the Welcome Center. Please sign up for both classes so we can uh, prepare uh, for that ahead of time. Um, we're going through the book of Romans. I'm very excited about this. This is week number four. And don't forget, Romans is about the gospel, and the gospel is about Jesus. And so this is uh, Paul in his deep theological uh, um, manifesto on the gospel, and uh, it's, if Paul was alive today, he'd have about six PhDs. He was a really smart guy, and so he takes all of his understanding of the law, all of his 
uh, rabbi training and, and as a Pharisee. He takes all that and, and points from, from Genesis all the way through Jesus. Uh, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. And uh, he takes uh, that apart and makes it, uh, although it's deep theologically, it's simple to understand. And so Jesus said the gospel was simple enough for a child to understand. So don't get thrown uh, by Romans. And if you're reading through Romans with us, and it's very, very difficult, I encourage you to get a cheaper, <laughs> cheaper, uh, get a cheaper Bible. And uh, your Bible's too expensive. And uh, so get an easier to understand uh, Bible. Uh, and they're not cheaper. Sometimes they're more expensive. So uh, there's a lot of uh, faithful translations. Let me, let me say that very clearly. There's, there's quite a few faithful translations, faithful to the original uh, Hebrew or the original Greek. Um, there's a lot of cults out there that make their own version of the Bible and they take out key things, but there's enough faithful versions that you can choose. And if you struggle with reading, and it's, it's no shame, most college textbooks today are written at a 10th grade reading level. That's just our culture that, that we're in. And so the King James Bible is at a 12th grade reading level. It's difficult to understand. The New King James uh, Version is at 11th grade reading level. And uh, so if you want to get something that's a little bit more readable, uh, f- a little bit more enjoyable in your private time, maybe uh, it's not a good study Bible word for word for word for word, uh, but it's faithful to the meaning of the Scripture. There's static translations and dynamic translations. Static translations are word for word. Probably the best one out there that I would recommend today, sorry, you New American Standard fans, uh, it's the English Standard Version. It's about 40 years newer than the New American Standard, and it's, it's very faithful word-for-word translation. Um, the uh, King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the Holman Christian Standard are all good translations as well, but probably a preeminent one is the ESV uh, and then there's some good dynamic translations that are translated thought for thought. Probably the two best ones out there are the New International Version and the uh, New Living Translation, New uh, NLT. Whenever I preach up here, uh, we try to, if there's no reference like King James or ESV or something, it's all, our, our go-to version is the New Living Translation. It's very understandable. And that's the way Jesus preached. He's my model teacher. He was the best teacher there ever was. And he generally used one-syllable words. All right? And so that's not dumbing down the gospel. What it is is making it understandable. Jesus used words like fish and coins and seeds and nets and things like that and so that everybody could understand uh, the deep, deep truths that he was espousing. So uh, let's read in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 16, I'm going to read the couple verses that Tyler preached on last week. He did a great job speaking about Paul's unashamedness of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work. The gospel is not a declaration of power. The gospel is power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is in in the good news, in the gospel, the power of the gospel that change people's lives forever, to bring healing, to bring repentance, to bring about an about face where you never thought that you would turn your heart toward God. The gospel message is power, that dunamis power from Almighty God, saving 
everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Making us right in his sight, there's a big theological word, justification, that simply means that God declares you to be righteous. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Don't forget this thing about faith. Faith is not, is not wrong. It's not cheap. It's not like a substitute for the real thing uh, uh, because faith is not tangible that we can uh, touch and taste and see. But faith is a cornerstone. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Okay, love, that's the only one we can talk about. No, there's faith and there's hope also. They're part of the big three. All right, that's, that's a big deal. Everything we do as believers is by faith. We receive Jesus by faith. We pray by faith. We put our offerings in by faith. We take communion by faith. We pray for somebody uh, that's sick to get healed by faith. Everything we do, we walk by faith, uh, not by sight. It's all trusting in who God says uh, he is and, and he'll do what he said he'll do. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. The King James Version of that says, the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther, about 500 years ago, as a monk, uh, he realized that he was uh, uh, in, a, in a system that required his works to come and approach God. And he kept having this verse go through his head, uh, the just shall live by faith. It's not works. We don't earn our salvation. Jesus paid for our salvation, this faith that we have. And so that little phrase started uh, a revolution of thought and a renaissance of thought. And sometimes people say, oh, it's the scientists who brought about the Reformation and the artists and things. No, it was the gospel that brought about uh, the Reformation and took us out of the dark ages. Starting in verse 19, uh, uh, verse 18, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul's making it very clear here that, yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, he draws us to himself. But he's also a God of wrath and justice. God, who's infinitely holy, has, has been offended by our sin. And, and if you want to know how angry God is at sin, at your sin, at my sin, just look at how he poured out his anger on Jesus, his only son, on the cross. All of your sin, all of my sin... All of the sin from every single person from all of time was put on Jesus. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. And yet he took willingly, he took our sin upon himself. Have you ever felt guilty for, for really doing something really wrong? All of that was put on Jesus at one time. That's pretty, a pretty big deal. God doesn't like sin. Don't flirt with sin. It's not, it's not, it's not a, something to mess with. When we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as the psalmist says, we, we won't go back uh, to that. But we'll live, by faith, righteous lives. Okay? Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that more next week. That anger that God shows, is his actual, actually his anger is allowing people who refuse the truth to be turned over to their own wickedness. And their, their, their minds became dark and futile. They became, uh, their thinking just was convoluted. Um, Psalm 106.15, a very sobering verse, says this. Psalm 106.15, And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. 
Sometimes we ask God for stuff, and this is speaking about just asking God, asking, I want this and want this, and God goes, okay, have it. And leanness of their soul. What a, what a horrible concept. Uh, actually, I don't want that kind of thing requested from God. So we'll talk about, a bit about that uh, next week. Verse 19, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities through the things that they can see, they also have this knowledge of God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul's making a bold statement here. Just like Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. When we go out on a hilltop on a starry night and we see the universe, you know those nights where you can see the Milky Way and you see a few shooting stars and, and you just go, Oh, God, you're awesome. Like this. Or if you get in, in a microscope and look close, 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 close down to the cellular or my, uh, uh, um, atomic level, subatomic particles, and you go, God, you are amazing. Yeah. When you look at a baby being born, I was able to see both my kids being born. That is a miracle. There is a declaration that there is a God. And if none of those things still convince you, you still got your fingers, they're different lengths here. You close them and they're the same. You open them and they're different. Close them, same. You go, there's got to be a God. All right, there has to be. There's about eight people going, So I'm going to talk about one of my favorite subjects this morning. We're going to talk about this creation just as an introduction to knowing God. Uh, so f- there's, there's a couple of things that theologians say there's, uh, uh, that makes us aware, makes God knowable. One is there's general revelation, and then um, there's special revelation. So the first two things we're going to talk about, um, uh, creation and, and a moral code and things like that, we're going, we're going to talk about general revelation. And then also, uh, the third one, we're going to talk about Christ. That's special revelation, or God revealed himself uh, in a unique way. First of all, general uh, revelation, uh, creation. Number one, creation. Um, there's a, a, just a couple areas of science that I'm going to touch on. Now, I'm not a scientist. I like learning about science. I find science uh, fascinating. I like, th- I like functional mathematics and things that, you know, that I can relate to uh, mechanically or, or, or apply and those kind of things. Uh, so there's this one area of biology. Let's just talk about that uh, for a second. Um, one of the most uh, compelling arguments for uh, God's design and creation is now uh, coming in at the cellular uh, level. Um, there, there's the recent discoveries show that every cell, every living cell, has digital information in it, much like the hard drive in your computer, where it's reproducible, exact copy. Remember old cassettes? That's not digital. That's analog. If you made a copy of a copy of a copy, then you got that Steve character on, on that uh, multiplicity movie where the guy keeps copying himself. You know, and they go, well, you know, the copy of a copy, he ain't so bright. And so, uh, 
a good copy. I've lost anybody under 40. When you, when you, when you make a copy of a tape, this, the quality is less. So if you make a copy of a copy, it even gets really bad. Okay. So digital copies are exact imprints. Uh, so as it turns out, you know, biology is proving more and more um, that there's information on a cellular level which uh, compromises a complex, non-repeating sequence. Uh, uh, and it, it's highly specific and relative to that cell, and so it's duplicatable. Uh, there's a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, and, and pray for him. He, he doesn't like Christians much, and he doesn't believe in God at all, so he says. Uh, a theist is a person, the definition of theist is a person who believes in God or a God. Just somebody who believes that there's some type of God out there. Doesn't mean they're a Christian, they're a theist. Okay? An atheist means they don't believe in a God or gods. They don't believe in anything out there other than, than what they can see and taste and touch. So he's very famous for, for being vocal, and he'll chew most Christians up and spit them out in arguments because he's very smart and all this kind of thing. So here's what he said recently about this digital imprinting on, on cells, individual cells. He said, The machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. And in fact, if you get most scientists to be honest enough, they'll admit that, yeah, there's stuff down there that's just, they can't believe. It's, un, it's unreal. They may not want to admit that they believe in God, but they go, there certainly is some sort of design uh, in creation. And so we can make this comparison on a cellular level to uh, things like uh, computers and, and the informational sequences that we see. Uh, there's another area of science uh, branch called mathematics, and uh, we had a little discussion about that And uh, in our eldership. We all determined that Mark is the most brilliant mathematician among the elders because he took high school algebra three times. And so... <laughs> Wait a minute, he's not even here. Where's Mark? Okay. All right. Oh, that's what you get for not being here, Mark. <laughs> Um, okay, so in mathematics, the probability, the probability, you know, the bottom line of evolution is that life came from non-life. And uh, the probability is not a billion to one. It's not a gazillion to one. It's not a gazillion, gazillion to one. The probability in mathematics from life coming from non-life is zero. Absolute zero. And uh, just a couple things. It's not... Take a, uh, a bacterial or, or cell, but let's go back to this concept of uh, irreducible minimum. Let's show that mousetrap. Okay, this is a perfect example of irreducible minimum. Here's a simple machine. It's called a mousetrap. There's five parts in it. If you took away any one of those parts, it wouldn't work. So that machine, you could have a mousetrap that has 100 parts or 1,000 parts or a computer built in, but this is the simplest version of a mousetrap that will work, all right? So it's got, it's got five parts there, and so that's called irreducible minimum. That means it's the, it's the minimum necessary parts to make something work. So then we go back to a bacterial cell. Remember 10th grade biology, and you took a picture of this cell, and this is a bacterial cell, and um, um, 
It's got a little tail, and it kind of wiggles through the ooze. And, and uh, you know, if you have a sore here or something like that, there's a bunch of those going around. And so remember studying those? Well, it turns out that uh, that little tail is not, is not just swimming. It's actually spinning, rotating. And um, the connection between the tail and the body of the cell, uh, there's a connection there. This is the flagellum. Uh, there's this thing called a flagellum motor. So this, this thing... Just let's hold it. Yeah, just this thing. No, not there yet. Oh, right there. Okay. That right there, that tail is rotating. Not only does it rotate, it rotates very fast. In fact, it rotates up to, uh, all you mechanics out there, it rotates up to 100,000 revolutions per minute. That's pretty fast. Try revving your car up to 100,000 RPM and see what happens. All right? Not only does it rotate very fast, but it can reverse direction in one quarter of a turn and go back the other way. So try doing that to your car. Put it in reverse on Highway 50 and see if it can do that in one, re- one quarter of a revolution of the engine. Isn't that amazing? So we go down to the next picture. We have an electron mic- microscope picture right here. That is not human-made. That's actually the rotor where the flagellum is spinning in this bacteria cell. That's, ma- that's made up of 40 parts, irreducible minimum, irreducible minimum, 40 parts, and you have this little rotary engine, a really fast one. And here's another uh, electron microscope picture of the gears in there. That's not man-made. That's in a bacterial cell. A simple one-celled creature, right? That's what evolution says, that we all started in a, as, as a simple cell in over millions of years, uh, hundreds of millions of years. It got more complicated. No, one cell is immensely complicated. So here's a diagram. This is not a picture. This is a diagram of a flagellum motor that's made up of 40 individual uh, proteins, uh, enzymes, things like that, that make up this this engine. If any one of those was missing, it wouldn't work. It's, it's the absolute minimum. Wouldn't you guys like to make a 40-part engine for your car that could go 100,000 RPMs and things like this? Just ask God to build it for you, and he, <laughs> he might do that. I think that's amazing. So evolution says that Things just kind of happened. They just come together. Well, physics tells you, of course, that things don't go from the simple to the complex. They go from the complex to the simple. So take your uh, uh, old-fashioned typewriter, plunk, 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 and the plunk, you know, like this. One of those, there's like 400 parts in there. Take one of those apart and put it in a box and hook it up to a machine that shakes the box. How long will you have to shake that box it all comes together into, yeah, into a laptop. Yeah, so. <laughs> so do you, do you see how things go from the complicated or organized to the disorganized? Just leave any teenager's bedroom alone for a day or two, and you'll see that it goes from the organized to the unorganized. So... If one of those parts was missing, it wouldn't work. So that's like saying this. 
Um, if we had a big barrel of Scrabble pieces here, and we put our hands in, and we threw them across the table, how many times would we have to do that to come up with a simple sentence like to be or not to be? It's 13 letters. How many times would we have to throw them across the table till they all went into a perfect sentence, to be or not to be? It would never happen. We know that. And yet we are told that, boom, the very first cell that ever took place anywhere had a DNA chain of three billion parts that came together. And since bacteria cells only live for a few hours before they reproduce, it had to reproduce itself exactly after the first time. And people say there's no design in creation. So, how about the cosmos? There's this thing called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. Not cosmetology. Cosmology. All right? There's a big difference. This is about the universe. All right? And, and the cosmological argument for the existence of God says this. If it exists, someone made it. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. Um, this podium right here. This podium exists. Would you say it exists? All right. Do you, would you say somebody made it? All right. There's maybe a couple hundred parts here because there's a lot of little dowlings and a lot of things. My friend Joe made it for me, and it's out of a 150-year-old oak from a little church in Iowa. And um, our, our intellect and reason would say somebody made this. But when we look at one of those cells for a bacterial cell and a flagellum motor, people say, no, that just happened. No. There is design and creation. So how about the universe? Uh, there's a lot of modern discoveries about cosmology. And basically, in the field of cosmology, studying the universe, they, there's universal conclusion that the universe had a beginning, had a beginning. In other words, it didn't always exist. So what's, what's our cosmological argument? If, some, if something exists, something outside of it made it. And so there's this thing called the Kalem argument uh, that states that, number one, everything which begins to exist has a cause apart from itself. Number two, the universe began to exist. So number three, therefore, the universe has a cause apart from itself. And there's a quote here from that journal saying, so it appears that the data from an uncaused first cause exists outside the four dimensions of space and time. In other words, the universe began to exist, so it had to have a cause outside of itself. And that cause that exists outside of what we understand, because we are finite, we are temporal, God is eternal, so he exists outside of our understanding of anything. And it says something exists outside the four dimensions of space and time which possesses eternal, personal, and intelligent qualities in order to possess the capability of intentionally bringing space-time matter uh, into being. So that's kind of a deep, if you like philosophy, get into that. It's a deep subject, but basically it says the universe exists. Somebody had to cause that. Former atheist Lee Strobel, some of you may have read A Case for Creation or A Case for Christ. Uh, he was an atheist, and he set out to disprove God in the Bible. And during his journey, he came to the conclusion that there is a God, and he gave his heart 
to Christ. And he said this, Essentially, I had to realize that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything, that non-life produces life, that randomness produces fine-tuning, that chaos produces information, that unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take, especially in the light of the affirmative case for God's existence. In other words, in my assessment, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. Paul says it here. It's plainly evident. You know, the Bible never attempts to prove God. It assumes that everybody has this knowledge of the Creator because we are stamped and created in His image. Number two, conscience. This is still general uh, revelation along with uh, creation. Uh, This has to do with morality. Most people would admit that there's right and that there's wrong, even though the prevailing worldview in our culture is, is uh, humanism. Now, when I say humanism, I'm talking about elevating man to the highest level, not God. Uh, not humanitarian or humane. Those are similar words, but not the same as humanism. There's an actual American Humanist Association. It was founded by John Dewey, uh, way back in the 30s with the Humanist Manifesto, number one. They had now have a number two and a number three. They have five basic tenets of their faith. Number one, that there's no God. Number two, they believe in evolution. Number three, they're amoral. Not immoral. Immoral is when you break what you know is wrong, you break the law. Amoral means there is no right and wrong. See, I determine my own truth. Yet, if you... In, that's that's our, our main culture. It's in every movie... TV shows, books, entertainment, news, uh, politics, education, and pretty much has taken over the church. Not this church, but the church. And so there's no absolutes. There's no moral absolutes. It just depends on the situation. And uh, that's pretty much our, our number one religion in America today is humanism. But if you went to any one of those humanists, you would say, I'm going to break in your house tonight and steal your TV. They would say, that is wrong. And you go, no, there is no right or wrong. My truth says that I can go steal your TV. And inside their heart, without them knowing it, there's this stamp of knowing right and wrong. That is not right. And so you can go to any culture in the world, and they have a moral code that they live by. And generally speaking, most of those moral codes are similar to each other. We, we know in our knower what's wrong and what's right, and it offends us. And we have this sense of justice. If something, if I'm wrong, there needs to be justice for it. And so the moral argument begins with the fact that all people recognize some sort of moral code. Um, so every time we argue over right and wrong, we're appealing to a higher law that's in here, this moral law. And people will say, well, you know, just whatever society, uh, you know, whatever people generally feel is right, then that's, that's, that's the law, and that's right and wrong. And, and then I just go, well, 500 years ago, everybody thought slavery was okay, so was that right? No, it wasn't. Just because the culture says it 
Just because the tribe in New Guinea says that it's okay to go kill your enemy and eat his heart so that you get his courage, that's not right. So we get into these collective decisions that we make uh, about morality as a culture, and sometimes we're wrong. And we appeal to the higher law, the moral law giver. So that's, in essence, uh, moral law transcends humanity, and this universal law requires a universal lawgiver. So this is argued that there is a God. Every culture has a moral code. Number three, this is special revolution. Revelation. Revelation. I'm mixing up my words today. Revolution. Revolution. All right. Creation, conscience, Christ. You can remember those. The first two are general revelation. This one is special revelation. Let me just read what the scripture says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. If we could see the unseen world right now, most of us would get freaked out. Elijah and his servants, looking at the armies that were against Israel, understood that in the natural they had no chance. And the servant was terrified. And Elijah goes, Lord, open his eyes. So the servant all of a sudden could see the unseen world and the hills surrounded by fiery chariots of the Lord's army. I want you to know that there's an unseen world. You might be aware of it. And it's not like watching the sixth sense where the hair on the back of your neck stands up. It's not something silly. It's something that's real. And there is a real enemy out there that hates you, hates you and hates your children and will do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy, ruin your hope, take away your faith, water down what you believe in, discourage you, lie to you, get you to think that people are your problem. When it's your struggle, Paul says we struggle not against flesh and blood. That means your spouse or your small group leader or your pastor or your boss. or any. It's not that who we struggle against. It's the enemy who wants to rip us up, chew us up, and spit us out. That should instill a righteous anger yes. in you cause you to go to the Lord on your knees. That's true spiritual warfare. It's not getting all mad and everything like this. It's appealing to the higher law and saying, God Almighty, I need you. I need you to give me strength, to give me encouragement, to give me clarity, to give me wisdom, to live this life in the midst of arrows and spears and all kinds of stuff coming against me. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together, even our second beater-up car. He holds that together. 
which is often teenagers' first car. He holds everything together. Every molecule, every atom, against all the laws of science, he holds everything together, holds this universe together. Isn't he awesome? This is the Jesus about, about whom all the prophecies in the Old Testament, all of them, were fulfilled in Jesus. This is the Jesus who rose from the dead. Every other, I, I don't like using the word religion, every other religion, their founder is in the grave. Jesus' tomb is empty. This is the one that we love. This is the one that we serve. This is the one that we live for. This is the one that makes it worth it, even though we're, we're encountering trouble and struggle and tribulation on every side. He's the one that we live for. He's the one that we're investing into eternity for. He's the one that we serve. He's the one that we, we're raising our kids to love and to honor, not just to follow a list of rules. Yeah. Parents, please don't make the mistake of raising little Pharisees, rule followers. Please raise your kids up to love Jesus passionately. When you truly encounter Jesus, you'll never, ever be the same. Jesus said this about himself when the crowd was questioning him and looking for an excuse to crucify him or kill him or get rid of him. They were talking about Abraham. They said, how can you talk about it like this? And Jesus said this. He goes, before Abraham was, I am Whoa. They tried to kill him, but he evaded them. I'd like to see that, how he did that. I don't know if he disappeared or, you know, like got down like a ninja or something like I don't know. But he evaded them because it wasn't his time. He said, Before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I don't exist in your framework of time and space. I'm eternal. I'm Almighty God. And they knew that that was the name for God. I am that I am. And so they tried to kill him. But that's the Jesus that we worship. That's the one that we love. That's the one who made you. That's the one who made the flagella motor. That's the one who put creativity inside of you. I'm sorry, but your dog is not creative. He's not going to paint a picture. We are created in the image of God. Isn't that amazing? So let's apply this. How can God hold someone accountable if they don't know the truth? Honestly, Paul says it here very clearly. Don't let this sound harsh, but he said this. People from all time have creator knowledge, and they've chosen to suppress the truth. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them for ever since the world was created. The people have seen the earth and sky, through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yet some people suppress the truth. We're going to talk about that next week. Number two, you can know the truth. You can know the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. A lot of people out there say that's rather harsh, don't you think? Well, I didn't say it. Westside didn't say it. Jesus said it. He's the creator of the universe. He said, actually, you've got to go through me. You've got to go through me. If you want to know the Father, you've got to go through me. If you know me, you know the Father. You can't get to the Father through anything else. 
you can't understand who God is without knowing who I am. I want to encourage you today. There's a whole lot of you who said yes to Jesus a long time ago. I encourage you to say yes to him every day. I encourage you to say, God, thank you for this morning. Instead of getting up in the morning and saying, good Lord, it's morning, say, <laughs> say good morning, Lord. It's a little bit different. Invite him to be with you and hang with you all day long, to walk with you and talk with you. Amen. Father, thanks for this word. God, we thank you for your invisible qualities, your eternal power, the things that are working in you, your amazing creativity, the way that you've made us and stamped your image upon us. God, we love you and we honor you. God, thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for making yourself knowable. God, we treasure our relationship with you and we guard it carefully. If you've never said yes to Jesus, please, right where you're seated right now, right now, just say in your heart, all that stuff that that guy up there said, I believe in you, Jesus. I trust in you. Please forgive my sin. I want to make you the person in charge of my life. Please make me born again. Make me a believer. I want to follow you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.